All right, Andy, here's one for you. We are in the midst of hiring our first ever development manager. I have heard various recommendations of what's reasonable to set as some goals for this position. How do you set the goal for new funds raised in the first year for a new position like this? <laughs> this is like the the million dollar question, isn't it? Is like how do we how do we project fundraising revenue? <laughs> because there's yeah. nothing there it's it's do you just pull a number out of the air should it be a nice round number what's what's what information do we use to come up with it and it's actually it's actually easier than you think it is because you should already know based on your organization's history you should already know kind of what what the environment looks like for fundraising you should have a good sense of what's in the pipeline who you're going to talk to how much money they're capable of giving, the likelihood that they're going to give you that money, like what's the what's their past giving, if there's been any past giving. And you just put together effectively a financial model that's based on, on how many people your new development manager can reach out to. So the involving that person in that conversation is critical. You can't just make the number up and hand it to them. That's never going to be a good idea. You need to get them involved as well because they're going to be able to tell you, especially if you're hiring somebody that's done this before, they're going to be able to tell you, look, I'm, I'm capable of managing a portfolio of donors in this range of 73 people or whatever it is. And so we know that these, if we've got 73 good prospects and we know that there's money available and they have or haven't had relationship with us before. Those go into two different buckets. The likelihood changes depending on who that person is, the length, the contact, right? It's just a, it's just sort of a big algorithm and coming up with the, how the algorithm works and how you plug the numbers into it is kind of everybody's job. Um, what you can't do, what you shouldn't do is just throw a number out there or look at your revenue and see what the gap is and go, yeah, we're going to be a short $375,000 this year. Ugh. So you are responsible for $375,000. It's a, it's a good way to get people to quit really yeah. fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you look at, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's dumb. It's a dumb answer, but you look at what information you have available and then you sort of base it on that. And then you figure out what's the, what are the unknowns that we need to figure out? Is it, is it that we don't have enough prospects? Is it that we don't know enough about the prospects? Is it that people don't know our organization? And so they're like, who are you? Why would I give you money? Right? <laughs> so like, what's your pipeline look like? And how are you going to increase the increase the effectiveness and reach of that pipeline for that, that for that development manager? So I would say ditto to what everything Andy said. However, I would add another layer to this, which is going to diverge a bit from your question, but that I think is really critical to think about in this circumstance is this is your first development manager. I'm going to make some assumptions here and assume it's your first, right, any, any fundraising position you've ever hired. So... Oftentimes, when that's the case, there is a ton of just building some basic infrastructure for how you even handle donors, right? Like, do you have a database? Have you been tracking some of this stuff that sounds great to pull from that Andy talked about? But does your organization even have systems like that in place? Do you have a plan? Has there ever a strategic plan that talks about anything to do with fundraising? And so what I find is a lot of times that first fundraising position has none of these tools, right? They don't have a good thank you letter or a thank you process, acknowledge tax receipt process. They don't have, which is different by the way, than, you know, tax receipts and thank yous, two different things. 
They don't have a database or much of a database that's been kept up. They don't uh, even have kind of an understanding as a, at an organizational level of what fundraising entails, any materials to support when you go out to meet with the donor. So I also think that kind of as you're the organization thinking about what dollar goal you put on this, you have also got to realize this person is going to have to come in and kind of assess where you're at. And that might mean them saying, we got to build X, Y, and Z before we even start to go out and look for money. Or we need to do that simultaneously. And I need your help because this isn't a solo job. Me, myself, and I as a development manager can't do this without board members giving me some of their names, without people giving me the history of the organization. And so many times you see organizations where they hire these positions and say, great, raise your salary in three months, right? And um, fill the budget hole with this random number that is unrealistic to Andy's point and, and all this stuff, but, but they're never setting them up for success. So, so I think if I were structuring the goals, I would have a monetary goal of some kind based on all of this and talk through it. But I would also say, I want to see you to develop wherever our gaps or holes are. Like, do we have key talking points? Do we have a good story that we share with people? Do we have a database? Like, do we have a plan, a development plan? And so that should probably be included in the goals because I know everyone's hungry for the money, but you can't do the rest. You can't do the rest, right? You can't raise the money without the rest of it, so. I think that, yeah, that's a, a huge point too, is that, and how many times have we seen organizations that are in that kind of adolescent stage where the founding board founder (laughs) person is, has been raising the money personally or putting their own money in and gotten it to a certain point and done none of the work that you would expect a professional development team to do. There's no database. It's all, you know, recognizing that the founding, the founding board chairs like relationship to donors is different from this person you just hired who is not, you know, does not drive a brand new Maserati convertible everywhere, <laughs> right? They're just right. in a different class of human. <laughs> and so you're not really, it's, it's apples and apples to oranges that the, that it, and so the, the board chair founder gets really upset with the staff because they're not working fast enough or not doing things the way that they expect them to be done. And so you just end up with this friction because what you need is what Stacy, what you just said, which is the, the, the tools, you have to have the tools in place, all in place before you can raise a penny. And, and that time it takes to put that all together is really frustrating for those founders. Oh, so, so true. So you, your job may be recalculating expectations saying, Hey folks, if you want a sustainable long-term program, here's what it looks like. And it's going to take me X number of months to build this out for you and ongoing work tied to this. So it's not all about me going and raising all the big bucks. And guess what? I also can't do that without some of your contacts. So yes. Amen. And the ED needs to run interference for the development manager too. The ED needs to be like, that's where you're, that's where the hard part of the ED job comes in place is where you're protecting your staff and saying, look, they need runway. They need tools. We need to wait. So you need to back off a little bit board chair while we figure this thing out because Mm -hmm. we can't, nobody just walks in and goes, Oh, look what I found in the couch cushions. It's a check for a million dollars. It's never going to happen. You need to give them time and space. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. Welcome to Nonprofit Everything 
the podcast where hosts Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding answer your questions about all things nonprofit. Welcome to another episode of the Nonprofit Everything Podcast. I'm Andy Shurek. I'm here with my awesome co-host and overall round, well-rounded, really smart person, Stacy Wedding. And we're here to answer whatever questions you have about nonprofit stuff. So we've got three really good questions this week. Um, this runs on questions. I know you've heard us say this before, but the way this works is you send us questions. We do a bunch of research and we try to answer those questions. If you stump us and send us something that we don't know the answer to, we bring in guest experts. We don't have any guest experts this week, but that's because the questions aren't that hard. So send us some hard ones and let us bring some guest experts in. And with that, we're just going to jump right in and get to it. Here's a question. Interesting one. I am a white female leader with a racially diverse staff of all ages. Over the past year or two, I have noticed significant changes in staff's expectations of me, particularly among my staff of color and my younger staff. Many of them are asking for a voice in every decision that is made, even those decisions that aren't part of their role. As an example, they want to be part of ensuring equitable compensation throughout the organization. They want to be a part of changing the vision and mission statements for our nonprofit. And this only begins to scratch the surface. To seek everyone's input on almost every organizational decision isn't practical or efficient. How do I give them a voice while still ensuring they understand I need to make the ultimate decision on some of these issues? And how in the world do I find the time to meet this laundry list of expectations that grows each day? So I think I want to start by sort of pointing out a couple of statements in the question that I found difficult to hear. Um, So by starting the question with, I'm a white female leader with a racially diverse staff of all ages, and then talking about um, want to be part of ensuring equitable comp- compensation throughout the organization, I think you may have a systemic problem in your organization that needs to be addressed not through a podcast. Um, so you probably need to, to sit down with your staff. Um, and, and try to, in, in the, the calmest possible way, um, get everyone to explain to you what it is that they're saying. Because the fact that this is coming up is extraordinary. In 99% of situations where there's a white female leader with a racially diverse staff of multiple ages, um, the, there's never usually any conversation about equity within an organization when it comes to compensation, about the direction of the organization. That's not something that comes up in a in an organization that is already equitable and is already um, working to the best of everyone's ability and is already working in the community in the 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 most the most positive way that they can be. So the fact that this came up, I mean this is like um, this is like in a movie, right? In a movie Somebody like, like the main character is somebody who will get like a nosebleed 
just like a random little nosebleed and the music goes dun, 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 dun. You know, you're like, oh my God, they got a nosebleed. It's totally some sort of horrible disease that they have, right? So this is the nosebleed in the movie. This is explaining to you that you have a massive systemic problem within your organization that you need to address right now. And you need to figure out, not by talking to Stacy and me, by talking to your staff, and if you need to, bringing in some, some professionals um, to help you understand what the issues are. Because I don't think you understand what the issues are based on the way the question is phrased. So my opinion based on this is that there's probably some racial tension in your organization. There may be some old people versus young people tension in your organization. You may be operating an organization that's not in the best interest of your, of your, of your constituents. There may be some major sort of structural problems here that you need to address right away, um, or else this is going to get away from you in a really ugly way, which is basically everybody's just going to quit. Everybody's going to like, I'm not working there. Forget that. That's ridiculous. I'm going to go find another organization where I can be valued and I don't have to deal with this old white lady anymore because she's crazy. Right. So, so that's what the, that's what the nosebleed means is that you need to take it seriously and you need to figure out how to address it right now. And I'm just going to give you a little preview of the solution. You're not going to like it. (laughs) The solution is not going to be comfortable for you and that's okay. Um, Maybe, maybe, I mean, this really should serve as a wake up call to you to sort of look at these big issues. Your staff by coming to the, by, by talking to you in this way, by second guessing things, by wanting to be parts of these conversations, they are opening the door just a tiny little bit for you to see what it's really like to work for you. And you need to take that very, very seriously. I just want to say hats off to you, Andy, uh, because I was struggling with how to answer this. I think I felt the same things you did and I, I didn't know how to find words or voice to express it. So I appreciate what you just said and and would absolutely echo and concur with it. And I also think it would be interesting for the person who wrote this to also look at how they can change their perspective. I think one of the benefits of what's happened over the last several years is more people are speaking out and using their voice. And I think that is a positive thing because otherwise people would suffer in silence or they'd leave your organization and you'd never know. So you actually have a gift here to take what what is being shared and the feedback you're getting and to move it somewhere because this isn't this isn't changing. What needs to change is probably your culture and and kind of the way these things are, how decisions are made. It feels to me like there's an underlay of power and control here that you are struggling to let go of because guess what? It gets messy when you ask for people, you know, when, when there's a lot of voice given. And yet you look at every research and study out there today, people want to share like People are like, yeah, I want to use my voice. I want to live in an, or I want to work in an equitable environment. I want the same opportunities as other people have. I want to get paid fairly. I mean, these are things that at our core um, are really important issues. And I think things that there's, there's opportunities to think about how you can shift your perspective and get maybe the education you need to handle some of these dynamics of, of where, where, Things have have moved as a society and actually should have always been there, but for whatever reason, haven't. So it's it's a great opportunity to kind of turn this boat around. Yeah. So and and this isn't to say that 
you're in an unsalvageable position because what you're what you've discovered is that this so so one of the things that we talk about all the time or not we sorry Stacy and I don't but in sort of my CSR work one of the things that we talk about all the time when we're talking about um there's a there's there's it's been proven like scientifically proven there's tons of studies out there that that say that a diverse team is a more creative team it's like the more diversity of opinion you have the more creativity the more creative solutions you come up with the 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 better organizations end up in the long run like this is this is true and what goes along with that is sometimes we never step back and say why is that the case like what is it about that that makes that true and when you think about it what that is what you see there is you see diversity of opinion and friction both those two things are what drives creativity because if it were easy all the time and everybody agreed with everybody else and we were all super comfortable with everything all the time there would be no need to think about new creative solutions and in the nonprofit space where we're automatically working in an environment where we're we're trying to do something that's very difficult. The only reason we're doing nonprofit stuff is because we're trying to address unsolvable problems, these big, hairy, nasty problems that no one else can solve. And the way we're going to do that is by coming up with creative solutions. And that creativity that's driven by diversity, the creativity is driven by this, this like, these insubordinate young people who keep questioning your every decision <laughs> and making it very difficult for you to have a clear path, they're providing that friction. They're providing that discomfort, which is supposed to ultimately generate a creative solution to the problem. So you should welcome that in, in whatever way you can, recognizing that it is discomfort. It has to be discomfort because if it isn't discomfort, it isn't friction. Right. So this is the way it's designed. This is how it's supposed to work. Um, and I, I'm, it's, it's interesting that you've noticed that, but instead of resisting it, you need to recognize it for the positive, like Stacy said, you need to recognize it for the gift that it is. And, you know, the, the solution, the way out of this is to grab that with both hands and figure out like, is this an, are, am I missing an, by resisting it, am I missing an opportunity I shouldn't be missing? Yeah. And I think there's some inner, like, like there's some exploration you can do about why, you know, why am I resisting this? And and the sense I get, at least from the way you pose the question is part of this is a time thing. You feel stretched thin and you're like, I don't, how do I have time? Like this takes time. It's a lot easier, right? For us to make a decision and just go with it. Hey, top down, I made the decision. We're going with this. But the reality is, is you don't have buy-in and ownership. You don't have that created creativity, when you do that. And so ultimately it's going to flop anyway, and you're going to be back at square one. So if you look at it, like I'm going to put a little bit more time and energy into the front end on certain things, like here's the things I, I'm going to get feedback on. Maybe here's things that I truly don't think I need feedback on and maybe check yourself with someone on that and then figure out ways and forums to help make that manageable and controllable um, like manageable from a standpoint of just time, right? Like, so maybe it's every Friday, there's a ask me anything question or share anything on your mind for two hours in the afternoon, or maybe it's an employee focus group or whatever. Like I've heard these things like a reverse town hall meeting. I mean, you're probably not large enough for that, but right. Like this sort of idea of how you give employees a chance to, to share some of their feedback with you and then to let them know what that means. Cause I guess the other thing where I see leaders fall into traps when they do start down this feedback loop is then they get the feedback and maybe the feedback 
isn't what they wanted to hear. So they still are going to go with their (laughs) tried and true old fashioned solution. Um, Or they didn't manage expectations on the outset saying to employees like, I'm collecting your feedback. Here's what I'm going to do with your feedback. Here's how I'm going to check myself for bias related to feedback. And here's how I'm going to, here's how a decision and who's ultimately going to make the decision. And I need you to trust, just like I trust you to make decisions in your day-to-day job. I need you to trust me, but just know I do value your voice. Sometimes it's going to play in your favor and sometimes it's not, because that's where I also see this stuff going totally rogue when employees start to feel like they are running they are running the show and that their feedback is the end all be all. And, and let's be candid. Sometimes you just can't do it and it's not realistic. And you get, to, you get to have that conversation with them. Why? Like, and, and be transparent. Like, I think part of this is transparent leadership building. There's a great book, The Speed of Trust. I've probably mentioned it before, but it talks about like so many of us go through this processing in our head, but we don't actually ever communicate why we're doing something, the intent behind it what we're trying to get out of it, all those things. And so people make up their own stories behind it. So I think I think there is some really cool opportunities here for you um, that are that are going to actually probably end up with better solutions than just you can come up with. So I can't wait to hear a follow-up. I hope you'll follow up with us. We need to expand and update our existing building, and it's going to be very expensive, so we need to run a capital campaign. Our current building is named after the donor that provided the lead gift in the campaign 30 years ago. How should we handle naming rights on the new building when it already has a name? Ugh, that's rough, isn't it? That's what happens when you live long enough to have that problem. I know we need a brand new building, but the current building has a name and now we can't attract anybody else because we would usually use the naming rights to, to sort of help with that lead gift in the new capital campaign. That's a tough one. Um, well, congratulations on living long enough for that to be a problem, I guess (laughs) that's like (laughs) the one silver lining. So, so the, the first thing you probably need to do, I know you know this, the first thing you need to do is look at what the original agreement is to see what it says. Because there may be, there may be language in the initial agreement that, that had a time limit on it or um, has an out clause or has something, something in it that'll give you advice on what you're supposed to do next. Um, if, if that, on the other, if there isn't anything in the agreement, and, and then that also raises the question, like, do you, do you want to? Is it important to agonize that lead donor um, from 30 years ago? Are they still important in the community? Are they still important in your organization? Is it, should you, um, are you, are you making things worse by, by trying to rename a building? Or is there, are there other things that you can do to be creative, to get around it? Um if it's somebody that's, you know, it's a foundation that's vanished or one that's closed up shop, moved on, doesn't have any money, more money to give out. And so they're gone. Um, then, then your options may be a little bit different. So, so looking at the agreement first, I think is step one and see what it says. And then obviously step two is having a conversation internally about like, what, like, is this, if we did this, would this be smart? So something similar happened not that long ago, as like seven years ago or so. So, um, at Lincoln center, Avery Fisher hall, um, obviously that's where the New York Philharmonic plays, obviously named after Avery Fisher. Uh, so they provided a, a gift of 
think it was $10 million in 1973 or something like that, $15 million in 1973. And that building needs major renovations. They came up with sort of the same challenge where they needed a new, they needed a lot of money. I think they needed like a $500 million renovation. Um, and so they were trying to come up with a way to, you know, we can't just like rip Avery. Of course, everyone's heard of Avery Fisher Hall, but you can't just like rip the name off of it. And the agreement didn't include that. Plus the foundation's still around, the family's still around. So, so they actually came up with a really creative solution. They, they paid the foundation back the family. They returned the gift effectively actually paid more than they originally, I think. So the original gift was 10 million. Remembering now the original gift was 10 million. They paid the foundation back 15 million. And then they provided some other things on top of that as well. There's a uh, Avery Fisher prize winners are featured in the lobby. Um, so they, they found other things for that initial donor so that the name doesn't just go away. Um, the name is still connected with the Philharmonic, still connected with the building, still connect, connected with Lincoln Center. And, and the, I think that, you know, the family was okay with it, obviously, because they agreed to it. And that way they could raise a lead gift. I think it was David Geffen so that they could get on their way to that $500 million renovation that they needed. So, so there are creative solutions out there. Um, you're, you're paying the initial gift back might not be sort of in the cards for your organization. Um, but, but sort of recognizing that most donors are reasonable. They'll understand like, look, we had this building for 30 years. We need to do this new thing. Do you guys want to be the lead gift in our new capital campaign? And we can talk about that. Or can you help us figure out a way to get a lead gift that doesn't disrespect, you know, the, the 30 years of, of, of awesomeness that we've gotten out of the building that you guys helped us get 30 years ago. Um, like having that conversation might be, might be, might lead to more interesting new things too. And I think just piggybacking off all that is the need for this named gift policy and this agreement on these kinds of things. We're talking large gifts, sizable gifts, and there's a lot of expectations that come with that. And there's a lot of nuances and variables that can come up over time that none of us can plan for or see. So this is one example of that. Uh, there's, There's others where I have seen or heard about cases where there's a named building and then that name gets in trouble in some very public way with the law. And now that name is tied to that building and that organization. Not great, right? Um, Or has just a really seedy history or jaded. Like there's just a lot of things to think about. Um, There's also, I was, I was, thinking about a story that I read not too long ago about somebody, a donor who said, listen, I don't want my name on it, but I really, I'm a very religious person. And instead of my name, I want this Bible verse. I am going to be your lead gift. So I have this Bible verse on this. And that board had to really wrestle with, did that go against (laughs) some of their policies? Was that in line with their mission? How did that, ultimately they decided it was okay because it was generic, generic enough and could be considered non-denominational enough that they felt okay with the general sentiment. But but these are just a couple of examples of things that can happen. So you really want to carefully put together that named gift policy and, uh, and make sure you have an attorney review it. And try not to tie your hands forever because that really gets sticky. And I think a really practical solution beyond some of the ones Andy mentioned is also like, is there an opportunity to have two names on the building? Like, or like there's placards or there's something where like, 
it's 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 a way that you incorporate the new lead gift as well as the one from years ago if you can't shift that conversation or shift that dynamic. So just just a few ideas for you. Thank you. So appreciate you. You make our jobs better. We had another episode of Nonprofit Everything that I'm curious to know what what you liked most about this episode. Drop us a line. We always want to know what you liked most and what you didn't like because that helps us improve. So let us know and uh, we'll make sure to take your feedback into consideration as we move forward. I do have a random story. The other day I was talking to someone and this happens quite frequently and I mentioned, oh, you know, I hope you'll check out the podcast. And this person said, oh, yeah, I, I I saw you on your podcast. I I I looked at it, was watching you uh, when you sent it to me. And I was like, no, no, actually, you just totally lied to me because <laughs> you don't watch us, at least not on our podcast. So do not lie to me because I'll catch you in it and I'll call you on it. So anyways, but with that said, I know none of our listeners would lie. So thank you for being loyal listeners and uh, we appreciate you. Bye.